0: Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 10, The Wisest Fool in Christendom. The fearful abounding at this time in this country, of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches or enchanters, hath moved me, beloved reader, to dispatch in post this following treatise of mine, not in any wise as I protest, to serve for a show of my learning and genius, but only moved of conscience to press thereby, as far as I can, to resolve the doubting hearts of many, both... That such assaults of Satan are most certainly practised, and that the instruments thereof merits most severely to be punished. An excerpt from James the Sixth and First's demonology. You are indicted for coming to Elspet Motry in Woodhead Woods and asking her to lend you a penny, which, when she had given you, you took the penny and bent it. Then took a cloth and a piece of red wax, and sewed the penny and the red wax inside the cloth. And then, having enchanted that cloth, you gave it to the said Elspeth Muttry, bidding her to hang the same about her neck. And when she saw the man she loved best, bade her, then take the cloth with the penny and the wax, and stroke her face thereafter. And she so doing should attain the marriage of the man whom she loved the best. And the said Elspet, understanding that the said direction to her was plain witchcraft and devilry, she cast the cloth into the fire, which had almost burned all her house, and this you cannot deny. One of the charges against Isabel Scuddy, strangled and burnt in Aberdeen, March 1597. A very wise man was wont to say that he believed him the wisest fool in Christendom, meaning him wise in small things, but a fool in weighty affairs. Sir Anthony Weldon in The Court and Character of King James I. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last time, we covered one of the most famous witch trials that ever took place in the British Isles, the North Berwick Witch Hunt. This trial is notable not only because James had it publicised as evidence of his piety, but also because of the highly political impact the trials played in Scottish court politics. One suspect, Lady Jean Leon, had made an enemy of the powerful Earl of Angus who just so happened to be involved in the trials, and it just so happened that, after he died from natural causes, I might add, the number of confessions implicating Lady Jean dried up. The North Berwick hunts also brought the Earl of Bothwell to the fore, a cousin to the king and a potential successor should James die childless. He was accused of plotting with witches to summon the storm that almost sunk James's ship during his voyages to and from Denmark. Whether or not the charges were true, Bothwell had enemies at court, namely the Lord Chancellor, John Maitland, and eventually the king himself despised him. After leading multiple rebellions and foreign incursions to prove his innocence and show that he wasn't a traitor, at one point he even held the king captive, Bothwell was outmanoeuvred and forced into exile, where he died penniless. While Bothwell's personality was always likely to clash with the kings, it is entirely possible that without the charge of witchcraft, he would have remained in Scotland as a relatively trusted nobleman. As it was, James managed to use the trial to both shore up his reign in Scotland and boost his image abroad. Today, we will finish with James's reign in Scotland, and not just because it ends this little mini-series quite neatly. James continued to be obsessed with witchcraft, writing one of the most famous witchcraft texts, Demonology, and Scotland would suffer another of its greatest witch hunts during his reign. We will cover James's inheritance of the Throne of England in a future episode, one that will cover in detail the witchcraft statute that he enacted, the Hunts that occurred in England in the 1600s and 1610s, and of course, the relevance of James to the invention of the most famous portrayals of witchcraft in all of dramatic history, the Three Sisters in Shakespeare's Macbeth. But that's for another time. When we left off last time, Bothwell had thrown his lot in with the Catholic Lords of Scotland, notably Huntley, Errol and Angus, who had rebelled against James only to be crushed in March of 1595. Most of these lords suffered a brief exile, but were allowed back to their estates after public apologies and their conversion to Presbyterianism, the Scottish branch of Protestantism, in 1597. With the defeat of the Catholic lords in 1595, James had more or less removed the threat of Catholicism to his reign. It would remain the private and public faith of countless commoners and some nobles, but it would never trouble James's rule again. Well, not counting the whole gunpowder plot, but that's a topic for another day. While James had managed to remove Catholicism as a faction within Scotland, he still had to contend with radical Presbyterians who had gained control of the Kirk in late 1592, and had now removed their primary religious opposition within Scotland. While Kirk and Crown had managed to largely cooperate in the ensuing years, this relationship largely broke down with the defeat of the Catholic Lords. The reconciliation pursued by James was not well received by many of these radicals. They were not only traitors to their crown, but religious dissidents and had to be punished. The hardliners also opposed the Octavians, a group of eight powerful royal officials who not only held alleged Catholic sympathies, but were guilty of an even worse crime. They were good at their jobs. Why would this be such a sticky issue? Well, they were officials of the Scottish Exchequer, and their job was to recover tax and tribute that was rightly the king's. Established in January 1596, the Octavians levied import taxes, ordered an expedition into the highlands to demand absent revenue, and attempted to stop the worst excesses of corruption. The Octavians were a symbol of royal authority, and in the tumultuous political scene of 16th century Scotland, they were a target. The Kirk radicals demanded that James dismiss these officials, and James, stern believer in absolutism and the divine right of kings, did not agree. Instead, he accused the leading minister of treason against the crown. Things came to a head in December of 1595, when Presbyterian ministers in Edinburgh may or may not have stoked anti-Catholic sentiments, to the point of causing a riot against the actions of the Octavians. This riot caused the king and his court to flee the city, but the kirk was unable to gain noble support and the riot burnt itself out in mere days. James returned in force and began a royalist clampdown of his tenacious kirk over the following year. Religious strife was not the only affliction affecting Scotland over this period. Between 1594 and 1599 there were multiple failed harvests. Scotland was never known for its fertile farmlands, and this famine led to mass starvation, followed, as it often is, by plague. As we discussed back, way back, in episode 1, Sparks and Kindling, the witch panics of the early modern period often coincided with a combination of economic and political instability, and a ruling elite that was either in favour of prosecuting witches, or was unable to rein in their overzealous subjects. In the case of the 1597 trials, Scotland's religious class was on the hunt for enemies and dissenters, be they Catholic or otherwise. Archbishop John Spottiswood of St Andrews wrote an ecclesiastical history in the 1620s, and he argued that the witch trials that swept Scotland in 1597 were driven by particularly enthusiastic government ministers and Presbyterian preachers, and that James himself was either unaware of the extent of the trials, or opposed them entirely. Historian Julian Goddard disagrees, pointing out that papers from the Scottish court explicitly describe how James had, quote, "...his mind only bent on the examination and trial of sorcerers' men and women." King James was still deeply interested in, and fearful of, witches, and the link between witchcraft and treason that appeared during the North Berwick trials had never really gone away. In the 1597 witchcraft trial of Malcolm Anderson, he confessed to trying to drown the king during his voyage to Dundee in May 1597, as well as attempting to kill the young Prince Henry Frederick, James's eldest and, at this point, only son. Goodair goes as far to argue that, quote, 1597, in short, was another North Berwick, a major panic over treasonable witchcraft that was thought to be directed against the king personally. No wonder he was bothered. End quote. Some scholars consider the trials of 1597 to be more of a final climax to events that began in North Berwick, rather than a standalone event, and indeed there are a smattering of trials and hunts throughout the intervening years. In July of 1595, for instance, a letter records that, quote, Many witches are taken and burnt in the Mers, some for mean, some for greater matters. The Mers, incidentally, is another term for the modern county of Berwickshire coming from the Old English word for border. Berwickshire bordered East Lothian, where the town of North Berwick can be found, so these places are relatively nearby. In Aberdeen, the city famous for its beautiful granite buildings, ancient university, and the History of Witchcraft podcast, the Dean of Guild was commended by the town council because, quote, his extraordinary pains on the burning of the great number of witches burnt this year. Good on him, I suppose. Between 1596 and 1597, a woman named Jane or Janet Wishart was convicted on over 30 charges in the Aberdeen Tollbooth Court, with 18 being related to witchcraft. These ditties, uh, the list of accusations brought before a witch trial, were based on events covering the previous 20 years, and are quite helpful in illuminating what sort of actions could be construed as witchcraft. One charge was that Janet cast a spell on a fisherman, who was then bedridden with illness for a month. In another, Janet was seen leaving her neighbour's property at two in the morning by a group of five men. Goodness me, the scandal. The men naturally rushed to tell the neighbour's wife about Janet's nocturnal visit, and less than a day later, two of the men were dead, drowned in a lake where they had gone to wash. Two of the three surviving witnesses agreed to testify against Janet for causing the death of their friends. Another accusation was from her own son-in-law, John Allen, who had been chastised by Janet after he hit his wife, her daughter. After this domestic drama, John's bedroom was repeatedly invaded by a large brown dog, who would proceed to attack him but left his wife alone. This continued to happen, until John threatened to report Janet to the local Kirk minister, and the dog stopped breaking into his house. It's also possible that John finally thought to bar his door, but I'm only speculating there. Just over a week before Janet was arrested, her neighbours reported a loud, rumbling noise coming from her house, frightening them, and this too became a point of evidence towards her supernatural abilities. This trial did not only include Janet, and her son, Thomas Lewis, was convicted of being the ringleader of the witch coven, having confessed to holding a midnight meeting at the Castlegate, where they met the devil, played music, and danced. Thomas apparently beat a woman called Catherine Mitchell, because she wasn't as good or as fast as the other dancers, and ruined it. For non-Aberdonians, the Castlegate is more or less across the road from the Tollbooth, where witches were caught and imprisoned, which is considerably brave, or foolish considering he was caught. Both Thomas and Janet were strangled and burnt, according to the accounts, through the use of peat and barrels of tar. The executioner was paid £3, 13 shillings and 4D for Thomas's death. So Janet and her son are both dead and ash. Surely the rest of the family will be left alone now? Of course not. Janet's husband, John Lewis, as well as their three daughters, Elspeth, Violet, and one also named Janet, were all accused of sorcery. They were, however, found not guilty. Hey, fantastic! However, they were found guilty of associating with Janet and Thomas, because they were their family? But either way, they were banished from the city of Aberdeen, so not quite fantastic. Another ditty that survives details the trial of an Isabel Scuddy, who was found guilty and burnt in March. Among the accusations against her were, quote, gathering up bones in Dice Churchyard, boiling them in water, then taking this water and washing William summer of Hatton of Finchery. Thereafter, she caused William's mother to take the bones and throw them in the River Don, which, when she did, caused the water to rumble in such a manner as if all the hills had fallen. Another accusation was quoted at the beginning of today's episode, that of the red wax and penny love charm. The Tollbooth Court had its busiest day on the 25th of April, with a man and woman being charged with witchcraft, three people being declared fugitives from court and having their property seized, one woman being absolved from some but not all of her witchcraft charges, while another had her whole ditty thrown out. A man, John Ross, became the guarantor of an Elspeth Thinley and an Agnes Frame at the price of 200 marks for one and 90 for the other. Finally, a woman called Catherine Ferries was convicted on eight counts of witchcraft and scheduled to be executed. 1597 was Aberdeen's busiest year for witch trials, having largely avoided any turbulence during the previous years, with 31 cases being recorded in the courts, with Goodair stating that at least 27 people had been executed, with at least one suicide and one natural death during imprisonment. Eight people were convicted of non-capital magical offences, and five were acquitted. At least 80 people were involved in the Aberdeenshire Panic, with a minimum of 30 dying because of it. Moving south from Aberdeen, perhaps the most infamous aspect of the spike of trials during 1597 was the case of Margaret Aitken. Aitken was from the county of Fife, specifically the region of Balwary. Balwary had a reputation for the supernatural, with James V having a nightmare about the son of its lord visiting him with a horde of demons, while a 13th century physician from the area became a wizard in the local folklore. After being threatened with torture, Margaret confessed to being a witch and made a bargain for her life, She could spot others of her kind simply by sight, seeing something in their eyes, and if she was allowed to live, she would assist the prosecutors in their hunt. The torturers accepted this deal. Now, this is genuinely fascinating. Up until this point, I hadn't come across a case like this, although her actions did lead to imitators. The Malleus Maleficarum openly suggests that prosecutors manipulate their suspects through promises of clemency, and there are other examples of witches using their powers to help in the interrogation of others, as we saw last time with the interrogation of John Fian, where convicted witches removed his magical wards against confession. But this is on another level. Aitken, who gained the moniker The Great Witch of Balwery, was taken by a royal commission granted by James all across the country, from the lowlands of Glasgow and Edinburgh to the highlands of Athol, judging suspects' guilt or innocence simply by looking in their eyes. If she declared them guilty, they were to be taken and tortured further until confessing, at which point their punishment was as expected. Archbishop Spottiswood, in his ecclesiastical history, describes it thus, that for the space of three or four months, she was carried from town to town to make discoveries in that kind, Many were brought in question by her delations, especially at Glasgow, where divers innocent women, through the credulity of the minister, Mr. John Cowper, were condemned and put to death. In the end, she was found to be a mere deceiver, for same persons that the one day she had declared guilty, the next day, being presented in another habit, she cleansed, and she was sent back to Fife, where first she was apprehended. Aitken was found out when a sceptical prosecutor brought the same group of suspects before her on different days, in different clothes. Aitken then judged them innocent after previously deeming them guilty, horrifying the royal commissioners who had acted on her judgments. The deal to spare her life was revoked, and Aitken was arrested and taken back to Fife, where she admitted that everything after her own confession, and that she had no ability to detect the guilty. Aitken was duly convicted strangled, and burnt. The number of people tortured and executed based on Aitken's judgment is sadly unknown, but I've read unsubstantiated numbers of over a hundred. This is also one of the rare cases that the swimming test was conducted in Scotland, as discussed in episode 6, Synagogue of Satan. The Aitken debacle was a very public rebuke to the power of the royal commissions, and James's Privy Council made a proclamation on the 12th of August, severely increasing the burden of proof needed for a royal commission to be granted. Instead of many requests for commissions going through unofficial and informal channels to get to the king, through favourites and court politics, instead all requests must be subjected to the scrutiny of the Privy Council. The proclamation also required commissions to be granted to three people, rather than one or two, with the expectation that this would limit the damage that a single, zealous, overbearing prosecutor could inflict. Of course, James could ignore all of this, since such commissions were based on his authority, and ignore them he did, granting commissions to sole individuals on a whim. Here we find some opposition to royal involvement in the witch hunts, the Presbytery of St Andrews was a body of parish priests that governed the kirk in the region. In August, they complained to James's court, begging, quote, His Majesty for repressing of the horrible abuse by carrying a witch about, end quote, suggesting that commissions were still making use of witches turned dousing ones to hunt for the guilty. James's witchcraft treatise, Demonology, was published in Scotland in 1597 and in England in 1603, but scholars debate when it was actually written, with some arguing that James penned the bulk of the text while the North Berwick trials were still in full swing. James is recorded as summoning a large number of clergy to attend him in Falkland in September of 1597 to preach upon the theological implications and evidence of witchcraft. It is possible that demonology was conceived in direct response to the North Berwick trials was left half finished as these things often are, and with the events of fifteen ninety seven brought back into James's priorities. We have no evidence for a more precise publication date other than the year fifteen ninety seven so at the very least it is likely that the trials of this year spurred James to have his treaties published. The text itself openly attacks the arguments of Reginald Scott and Johann Weyer, two witchcraft sceptics that we have covered previously, in the early Century of Fire episodes, as well as the guest episode for the History of England. Calling their arguments against witchcraft damnable opinions, James attempted to refute their claims with evidence from scripture, as well as accounts from his own experience. As is common in early modern texts such as this, the bulk of the text is written as a dialogue between two characters, Philomethes and epistemon who discuss the topic from two points of view epistemon provides the theological argument while Philomethes takes a philosophical approach to the problem of witches and the law the book is split into three main chapters or books with news from Scotland included at the end book 1 describes the division of witchcraft necromancy and astrology how each method works and how their practitioners should be treated Book two compares biblical and mythological proof, citing examples as varied as Exodus's infamous law, Suffer Not the Witch to Live, and defines the differences between sorcery and witchcraft, that this distinction is only an appearance. Neither witches nor magicians have any real agency in their powers. Magicians might seem to command devils, and witches believed they served them, but in actuality they were being tricked by the devil with the permission of God. Both professions, if that's the right word, were equally sinful, and should be equally punished. The third chapter describes the spirits and demons that can influence mankind, listing four main types. The spectra are those that haunt particular spots, like houses or isolated places. The obsession are those that follow their targets to trouble them, and sway them from the Christian path, such as incubi and succubi. The possession were those spirits that you guessed it, possessed people to disrupt their mental state. The fourth are fairies, which he describes as spirits that specialise in illusion, tricking people with false prophecies. Notably, all of these spirits are under the direct supervision of God, preventing them from doing anything that will not, in the long term, lead to his further glorification and the improvement of Christian society. The text itself is relatively short at only 81 pages in its first edition, smaller by far than Reginald Scott's and Johann Weyer's works, which demonology was meant to dispute, and it is positively dwarfed by Martin Del Rio's mammoth thousand-page treatise. The actual content of demonology is fairly standard compared to other theological tracts on witchcraft. I'll let Normand and Roberts speak on this point. Demonology is neither original nor profound as a demonological treatise, but its lack of these qualities makes it typical. Its uniqueness lies in it being the only demonology by a Renaissance monarch. It makes a series of discursive moves in ways that are standard, even commonplace, in demonological treatises of the 16th and 17th centuries. It discusses a series of familiar topics, Can magicians really command devils, and why and within what limits does God permit the devil through his human agents to do harm? It asks standard questions, and offers standard answers. How does the devil bring about apparent miracles or wonders? Because he excelleth in nature, in swiftness of motion and in knowledge. It offers simple exegesis of the usual biblical passages, such as the evocation of Samuel by the Witch of Endor, and the wonders, not miracles, performed by Pharaoh's magicians in contest with Moses and Aaron. In addition, and in spite of the king's liking to speak scholastically, it discusses these familiar topics with comparative brevity and simplicity. So, James provides nothing new to the discussion, he only repeats what he's already heard. It's perhaps unsurprising that James isn't writing anything revolutionary, What he describes as witchcraft matches what he would have learnt from contemporary experts and based on his experiences during the trials of his reign. The final death toll for the Great Witch Panic of 1597 will never be accurately known. The events were widespread and performed by a number of royal commissioners and local officials, many of which were not particularly passionate in recording their work and conducted their trials in no uniform manner. Julian Goodair gives an estimate of 400 cases over the entire year and country, with under half of these leading to execution. He reaches this number by multiplying the amount of Aberdeenshire cases, the region with the best records, by five for each of the major places hit by the panics. These were Aberdeen, Fife, Perthshire, Glasgow, and Stirlingshire. If this number is more or less correct, then the 1597 trials dwarf North Berwick, although they still fall short of the Scottish trials of the 1660s. The importance of James to these events is debatable, although by virtue of the prosecutors relying on his authority, as well as his consistent interest in the study of witchcraft, it's fair to assume that he played a leading role in the worst excesses of this period. I don't mean to lay the blame solely at his feet by any means. James was not the one conducting most of the trials, But even while opposition to the trials began to grow in the second half of 1597, James persisted with the pursuit of witches. A sympathetic reader of events might describe James as merely doing his duty as monarch. In the mind of James and his counsellors, witches were an ever-present threat, both to James's reign and the Christian community, and they must be punished. Anything short of pursuing these criminals would be negligence. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.